The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Sophie Lewis. We talked about her article in The Nation, COVID-19 is straining the concept of the family, let's break it. We chatted about how the pandemic has underscored how dependent the nuclear family is upon the labour of others. We also chatted about why the family is being called into question by mainstream political commentators. And finally, we talked about whether the call for family abolitionism is strategically the right call to be making, and whether instead the left ought to demand the extension of the beneficial aspects of at least some families to everyone. Remember that if you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview, you can sign up as a PTO supporter on Patreon. For £3 a month, you can get access to extended versions of regular episodes, and £5 patrons also get exclusive access to episodes of PTO Extra, shorter interviews on current events. And if you're outside the UK, you can now also support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, who have lots of titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. One that you might like to check out is Automation and the Future of Work, in which Aaron Bananav uncovers the structural economic trends that will shape our working lives far into the future. What social movements, he asks, are required to propel us into post-scarcity if technological innovation alone can't deliver it? In response to calls for a universal basic income that would maintain a growing army of redundant workers, he offers a counter-proposal. Automation and the Future of Work is a consensus-shattering account of automation technologies and their effect on workplaces. It's out now from Verso Books and part of their November Book Club reading. You can buy it directly from their website or get it as part of your Verso Book Club membership. And now to today's interview. Sophie Lewis is a feminist theorist based in Philadelphia and the author of Full Surrogacy Now, Feminism Against Family, which we discussed in episode 35. So as you point out in your article in The Nation, one of the consequences of the lockdown seems to have been to have provoked heightened recognition of the extent to which the private middle class nuclear household is dependent upon the labour of others, in particular working class and and black and brown women, both inside and also outside of the of the family home. So before we get into the question of how politically useful that realisation has been, could you talk a little bit about the way the lockdown has revealed the much more extensively social character of the of the reproduction of the family? So the fact of having a pandemic, obviously, well, with an airborne disease is reshaping political reality, but also you know, as has been noted quite a bit in a in a superficial sense, domestic and intimate reality, we become more conscious of each other's bodies, each other's vulnerabilities, and the sense in which paradoxically, you know, distancing and masking, which sort of appear to be 
almost sort of antisocial sorts of gestures are actually forms of tenderness and care. There's obviously new questions arising about the units in which we reproduce ourselves. You know, I've heard people use phrases like infection pods or just pods or bubbles or, you know, or I suppose households, constellations that, you know, I have plenty of anecdotal data, as well as somewhat of a handle on the rushed but slowly emerging kind of social science data about how people are kind of coping with this contradictory set of imperatives, you know, governments on the one hand saying, stay at home, don't change anything. And and on the other, the obvious admission that that's impossible, that you cannot, in fact, continue to, for instance, look after immunocompromised or elderly relatives that might normally fit into the kind of naturalized view of what, you know, of the people that is right and good for you to touch. So there's this kind of making visible, this visibilization of the sort of produced character, the the chosen, the made character of kinship, I guess, is how I would phrase it. Could you expand on what you mean by the, the made character? What I mean by the made character of kinship It's one interpretation on a whole vast body of sort of academic scholarship. You know, classically, it's anthropologists who have uh, thought about kinship in depth, but not just in anthropology. Kinship is a key concept across the, the humanities and social sciences. And to sort of give my, well, gloss on it, I suppose that there has been a real ideological struggle about the way in which the bonds that we choose to call kinship, as opposed to friendship or political alliance or affinity, you know, that there used to be this other term, kith, the the ancient phrase kith and kin, which has kind of disappeared, I think, slightly from um, from everyday consciousness. We we know that there is such a phrase, kith and kin, but but no one ever uses the term kith, I believe. Kith refers to, you know, specifically relationships of belonging and lasting bondedness, ties, commitments that result from action, experience and place. So the, the, the distinction was between ties that come from blood or title, you know, marriage and the fact of being sort of born versus ties that come from living side by side as companions you know Donna Haraway likes to talk about how the word companion comes from shared eating literally breaking bread together touching the same material sources of sustenance and so on the one hand there's this idea that right okay kinship is given because there's this other thing which you make which is the the relations of kith but that's an in dispute. <laughs> and I'm, I'm of the party of the, the anthropologists who examine that, that premise that there's kind of an almost natural, unchosen form of connection between people and, and say, no, that's, that's just that's that itself is ideology. Kith and kin are equally made and reproduced. You know, we, when we come into the world, I mean, obviously, <laughs> there is... <laughs> Well, one particular body, a maternal body that we are deeply materially connected to, 
But, and this is part of what I tried to theorize in my in my book, Full Surrogacy Now, we still, we still need to be adopted. We still need to be encountered and chosen. If you think that that's not the case, then you are kind of performing a, um, a really strange naturalization of care and, and in particular mothering, which I think is just politically kind of deeply dangerous. We talk about reproductive labor and care labor as labor, not because we want to eliminate it, eradicate it, complain about it or denigrate it exactly. To be anti-work in this sphere is to think about how we can elevate the joyous and the fulfilling components of that labor and maximally reduce the way in which it feels like work by distributing it in a just and sort of dignified way. But the tie, yeah, the tie that we create when we take care of one another is an active, laborious matter, not some kind of metaphysical, cosmic or blood derived status, right, that asserts itself sort of ineluctably, like through DNA, or, or as I say, there are different kind of ways of figuring it. Just going back to the initial point about the way the lockdown has revealed the social character of the reproduction of the, of the nuclear family. If we just think about pre-lockdown situation and, and then the situation in the lockdown, like in a very sort of concrete sense, what are the ties that the lockdown has revealed that were invisibilized in the pre-lockdown period, if that makes sense? I think it reveals ties at different scales. You know, on the one hand, we're all, I think, uncomfortably aware that there are people in sort of sacrifice zones in healthcare, but also sort of logistics industries whose everyday existence is currently being collectively treated as as optional as dispensable really since we need our amazon packages and uh, we, we we all need to be able to depend on on hospitals on a different scale i think having a lockdown reveals to us the the dependency we have on everyday companionship and the deadliness of loneliness we're, we're forced to confront the tenuousness of our well-being if our lives are stripped down to the the households to which we are sort of allocated and many of us live in a very atomized way if you remove the possibilities of extra household contact and communion and so we you know we're forced to <laughs> to look at the norms around you know marriage and coupledom and dyadic parenting i.e two-person parenting and yeah we'll get into this i'm sure in a moment but there's you know there is a a whole kind of wave of of columns or at least there was in at the beginning of the of or in the summer of the summer of the pandemic people <laughs> writing op-eds about the extent to which parenting without your your mother helping, your nannies, your cleaners, whatever, sure is difficult, you know, <laughs> and kind of just noting that fact. But I think it's one thing to kind of appreciate that the supposedly self-sustaining little unit of, of, of the nuclear family, mummy, daddy, or whatever, that unit does not autonomously reproduce itself. Um, but it's one thing to notice that, that in fact, there are myriad labors pouring into this nuclear household from the outside, sustaining it. 
But it's another to recognize, which I think is what most commentators are not are not doing, to follow through and really think about where that this this nuclear household comes from historically, not just the idea of it, but its material instantiation as a as a form of biopolitical control, and and to think about how for many people, racialized populations and queer people, this isn't just a kind of neutral fiction that the problem isn't simply that, oh, it doesn't exist, it doesn't work. You know, in fact, there are lots of women reproducing the children of the rich or whatever. It's it's actually necessary to go deeper than that and to think about how the family is irredeemable. <laughs> like the, the notion that the exclusionary notion that we should belong to little micro unit teams does not serve us well. And it is unforgivably deleterious to the well-being of, of, of many of us. It's not just innocent or flawed. It, it works to render large swathes of humanity kind of less than, unrecognized in their humanity, uncared for, and sort of legally and uh, philosophically sort of almost a bit disposable or failed because of their exclusion from that form. So would you say that the nuclear family, such that it exists, and obviously, as you say, you know, it's, it's dependent on all, all sorts of labour from the outside that it's not necessarily recognised, but that the existence of the nuclear family depends upon masses of people who, almost because of the existence of the nuclear family, do not themselves live in the stereotypical nuclear family, that because of their, their role in propping up the family, their own way of living necessarily has to be different. It has to be more distributed and, and, and more fluid and doesn't have that sort of apparently atomized character that the nuclear family has, even if that's a, an illusion. Yeah, I think that's right. And there's a really interesting moment in a, a book by Laura Briggs, How All Politics Became Reproductive Politics. Kind of one of those long titles that contains its thesis very explicitly. So this is a really interesting book that, yeah, that makes the claim that recently all politics have become reproductive politics. But there's a moment I wanted to just mention. She uses the example of Filipina women coming over to the United States and, and Europe to work full time, sort of reproducing the, the households of often, you know, white upper middle class people and their families. And then she pinpoints the hand-wringing and the pity for the left-behind families of those Filipina care workers and domestic workers. And this is such an unusual move, but she does it really well. Because it's, so. I mean, it's not just that she's saying there's a hypocrisy amongst Western feminist scholars who often are consuming that labor in their households in the global north. And, and then sort of lamenting the disunity of the left behind children, the Filipina children who have to be looked after by their, what quote unquote, we would call extended family or whatever. And, and then she, she actually interviews or, or, or points to interviews that have been done in the communities, interviews children asking what they think about the fact that, that their mother has to, has to be absent so much. And she just finds these kind of <laughs> counterintuitive sorts of data. Children who are quite surprised that you would 
automatically think that the family is sort of in some way sort of broken because of its largeness or its non-nuclearness. And and that's just such um it's a delicate point because it could be used to kind of justify or apologize for the neo-colonial reproductive division of labor on a global scale. You could say people don't actually mind it that much, it's fine. Oh yeah, people don't mind it that much, you know. And that I, I cannot stress enough is not my point or Briggs's point, you know. Obviously <laughs> the the exploitation of labor by capital is something I oppose as a as a as a leftist, as a communist, you know. But there is something about the kind of ideology of the sentimentalization and ideology of, of a natural nuclear household that that is sort of geographically and historically kind of continuous or or, or right for everybody, which leads us to sort of sometimes, yeah, not even extend our curiosity to sort of forms of kinship that fall outside of, of that ideal or norm, even when the reasons that that is the way that they are living is partly to do <laughs> with the realisation of that fiction for other people at the top of the global hierarchy. But again, it's almost as though we need to view the left behind families as a tragedy in order to kind of convince ourselves that the way that, that a North American family can be is desirable and right and so there is there is indeed something very much to lament about that situation but it's it's the wrong thing that is being lamented you mentioned all those sort of opinion articles and and think pieces early on in the lockdown from centrists or people on the center left that were offering some form of, of critique of the nuclear family in terms of the political conclusions that they were drawing from their own analysis was it effectively just a question of recognition of saying we look at the nuclear family clearly it's not self-sustaining it depends on on all these other people it depends on maids babysitters cleaners and so on and is the conclusion they draw merely that that needs to be recognized and perhaps these people need to be treated better maybe pay better but is do you think that's sort of the limit of their critique i think so i mean it's sometimes a bit mystifying i suppose it's quite a lot like the signs that you know encourage everybody to applaud frontline and quote-unquote essential workers as heroes you know okay and uh, what does that do should people be heroes is that a thing we want to just decide has to be the case you know requiring a minimum wage not even minimum wage workers to to sacrifice themselves and then you know reward them with with sort of daily applause or whatever you know it's not a political transformation is it there's no there's no structural solution being provided there I, I think it's kind of the same. I mean, the, the nannies are the heroes in these in these columns, kind of commenting on how, quote unquote, the nuclear family is is not enough or, you know, th- I'm just reading the headlines that I talked about in my nation article. Yeah, there was a piece in Slate, there was a piece in The Guardian, there's lots of pieces. Yeah, and I think the idea is to recognise that care work is important, which, which which is definitely a step, you know. I mean, it's not not part of my political project or trajectory but you know I always return in a sense to this this old moment it's it's very much kind of over cited and yet underthought. I think the wages for housework moment or, or as I always insist on reminding people wages against housework was the alternative framing of that of that platform so that, that was Silvia Federici's rephrasing and clarifying of it in a second pamphlet the demand was not give us wages, 
give us the houseworkers wages and that and then it'll be fine that is never what i got from it and 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 they they had to re restate the 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 movement there is 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 in a sort of strict sense kind of utopian we it moves towards the unthinkable to the not yet sort of thinkable because if we were to be paid for the things that really matter the whole concept of being paid for anything would explode you know the wage relation would have to explode if we were to actually be paid as they put it you know in full and retroactively because capitalism always depends upon uh, unpaid labor exactly so the demand for wages for housework was a sort of insurrection of housework against the wage or that or if you like the way she put it you know if, if you were to give us wages that would work against housework it wouldn't possibly and it was not desired to result in a situation where the household kind of stays the same with just a bit more formal equality within it no it it, it was in a well it, yeah again this is my interpretation it was they didn't use this language but it was a family abolitionist platform because the anti-work insurgency that they were proposing that begins with a recognition, yeah, a recognition that care work is important, but doesn't stop there and wants to demand that the joy and the satisfaction that, that does also exist within that labour, there is there is a kernel of something we really want to preserve because it's <laughs> it's kind of the, you know, some of the most important stuff there is on this earth, you know, looking, you know, looking after one another, enjoying one another, feeding one another, that needs to be held onto and enabled to be, you know, free rather than work. How can we possibly remake the world so that that which we currently have kind of bastardized and turned into a travesty by organizing it as work, calling it housework rather than the, the labor of life or whatever. You know, how can we possibly have a politics that puts this at the center and, and, and then keep atomized, wage-dependent households with usually just one housewife, you know, existing within it? It's, it's, it's completely unconscionable, right? Wages for housework is, is a sort of deeply utopian movement, I think, that, that, that demands that we think in the most wild dreamer kinds of ways about how we might live, how we might cook food, how we might take rest, how we might sort of share and, and provide the necessities of life to and with one another. And that is not what's going on in the columns that, that talk about, <laughs> as David Brooks, the New York Times columnist, put it, you know, uh, how, how the nuclear family was a mistake. He just means, and, and most of these columnists just mean, that we need to go back paradoxically to marriage. For these people, we need to return to the sort of fundamentals of marriage in order to build a kind of blood and contract based extended family around it in a I don't know, in a in a more intentional way or something. The idea being as I think as well, to come up with a neoliberal rather than a communist solution to the impending kind of demographic crisis where, you know, many, many of us will be very old and in need of, you know, care that isn't perhaps the very dismal quality of care that we are currently seeing. Um, exposed in the COVID crisis where care homes for the elderly are basically, yeah, 
amongst the sacrifice zones. But, you know, the solution David Brooks has is we, we need to go back to um, having our parents and our parents-in-law live in the same house as us, but not anybody else, right? Just just the sort of the right kinds of kinship is all that he can imagine living under one roof. Does that, perhaps not for him, but but for some people, does that extend to notions of bringing the help in the house, so to speak, return to a situation of you have servant quarters and this sort of thing? Yeah, I think I think that's actually exactly what it is. Yeah, I think the solution that many members of the ruling class have sort of hit upon for their experience of the COVID pandemic, particularly in places where there was a bit of a lull or, or the fantasy of a bit of a lull between waves of infection. The moment between the, the waves or, or in preparation for the second wave involves quite a scramble of wealthy people trying to sort of build almost like bunkers to ensure their enjoyment and the continuity of their ability to consume at a, a very high level all that is good to to consume in this in this world by making you know contracts or offering jobs for live-in help you know like that that old almost feudal kind of concept of members of your household who are servants who live in who are you know completely cut off from their communities whatever those might have been and who 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 join you know the village of your your wealth your lordliness i guess you know and and commit full time so that they won't infect you by going home and you know spending time with children that they might have a relationship with that that is quite extraordinary i think this kind of neo feudal tenet to to many different developments in 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 the political economy of this mad moment <laughs> but yeah <laughs> the 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 intimate sphere being something that yeah we can only like organize violently in this moment i mean hiring people in is kind of ethically problematic at this moment you know i was i i, I have actually just moved house and i was you know kind of contemplating what whether it makes sense to get a plumber in we're exposing because of the the wage and people to risks that you know in excess of what of what the wage tends to generally expose people to you know it's already a bad situation and in fact there are you know compelling cases to be made that it is in fact capitalism in a sense that created that that generated the the ecological kind of rift my friend put it to me this way i think last week we've fucked the world so so badly with colonial racial <laughs> capitalism and its sort of heteropatriarchal division of labor that we now we can't leave our homes and in order to sort of respond to that all we can do is attempt to consume more labor to, to retrieve our comfort perhaps by by requiring people who need the money enough that they will come in and fix your toilet or whatever we can we, we can fix the problem for ourselves in little in our tiny little bubble while we go mad and become ever more grumpy because of the the sort of the isolation and cabin fever that a lockdown breeds because you know as we we all know that for instance babies require touch and eye contact and sociality in order to survive literally but i i think sometimes that's lip service we don't we don't fully appreciate that that remains pretty much true about the animal that we are and that spending time with just yourself or one other person or even three other people within four walls for an indeterminate period of time is, is not conducive to, to thriving or flourishing. 
I recall that there was this kind of what was sometimes called an epidemic of drastic kind of isolation among Japanese adolescents. At least this was the way that the the media would package the narrative. Hikikomori, young people in Japan who sort of never left their bedroom. Also often associated with a, a disinterest in, in sex as well, right? Yes, right. Totally. Yeah, obviously, I think there were elements of Orientalism and exoticization, the way this this packaged narrative about about strange video gaming Japanese youths was sort of packaged for our consumption. But now looking back at it, it's as though it was a strange foreshadowing of the, the way that we are now forced to live across more swathes of the population. I mean, in a sense, this kind of lack of choice is something that the very poor in many sectors have had to endure for a very long time. I'm thinking of, for instance, you know, worker dormitories associated, in fact, largely with, well, yeah, with what I already mentioned, the, the sort of Amazon warehouse kind of archipelago. You know, the, the, there's already such a kind of deep incursion into sort of personal bodily autonomy that's just been affected by by the wage, by, by certain workplaces. But with a, with a sort of massive start, we were all kind of like, well, not all, <laughs> that's the narrative, <laughs> but large swathes of the population were plunged into a sort of new encounter with this with this reduction of freedom. And, and there is no quick fix. I mean, people rightly want to know what my, you know, what my grand solution is for the the violence i think it's fair to say of the of the nuclear private household and i i don't know i don't think you can think these things in a way that is separated from the notion of of a real revolution of a of a real commoning or communization of of the entire world <laughs> like we're going to we, we can't we can't kind of make enclaves that's already the system you know socialism for small pockets of the population at the expense of utter barbaric bare life for 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 the majority but that's not to say that i i think there's kind of no value in kind of glimpsing and trying to pursue and allow ourselves to be transformed by the tender and comradely ways of reproducing one another that 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 do kind of grow up through the cracks in in this society people who were never supposed to be dignified as human beings with binary genders i.e. for instance in the US context black chattel slaves were formally legally and ideologically not not women um, and men in the way that white women and men were and also therefore not parents not mothers not property owners including over their own genetic or gestational property right and on the back of that moment the nuclear family was kind of invented in the image of whiteness and a lot of black feminists have had very different opinions about what to do with the with sort of in the wake of that of that moment of, of dispossession and exclusion from the nuclear family. But, you know, for some queer black feminists, the political imperative is very much not to simply get access, to, to be dignified with those dubious privileges of having one's nuclear family kind of folded into the idealised power narrative. It's, in fact, on the contrary, to strengthen and develop 
the the modes of uh, <laughs> there's a kind of slightly cringe word sur th- thrivance <laughs> thriving survival you know survival pending revolution this phrase of Audrey Lords you know those of us who were never meant to survive have and and that includes you know sex workers working class people of all racial positions really but particularly kind of queer and black forms of street survival and survival despite in despite of modes of unmaking and un <laughs> unreproduction right like there's always kind of awkward phrases here Sharmila Rudrapa talks about how in addition to these systems of reproductive assistance right assisted reproductive reproduction that people in my field sometimes talk about because commercial surrogacy is one of those technologies of uh assisting people to reproduce she she proposes there's this kind of flip side of that coin which is desistance the the reproductive kind of unassistance desistance of other people's households and relations and so you know we we have to think about caretaking for one another mothering and so thriving as kind of quite positively political in a sense world making and not not simply resistance even i think i want to go further than simply acknowledging that i don't know care is important i don't think people always realize how deeply everything would change if we were to think outside of productivity what if we really tried to think about elevating care <laughs> above the notion of producing i i don't have the answer to that but i think in a in a moment of pandemic we're we're kind of all a bit uneasy and unsettled but perhaps by kind of <laughs> whispers of this possibility i mean partly because you know there are so many of us kind of unemployed and uh receiving something a bit like a basic income kind of temporarily you know for many people that that made them very temporarily richer than they were used to being and at the same time unable or not required to go to work and so that that really does provide a even even an ever so brief interlude or pause in which you can actually recover from the ravages and the brutalizations of work perhaps sufficiently long to get together grieve feel think and ask yourself what it is <laughs> you know we actually want in on this earth big questions become i think temporarily thinkable in 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 moments of disruption like this You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month. And if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening.